0: New Books in Economics brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy.
1: Welcome to this new episode of New Books in Economics. I am Andrea Bernardi, your host of the channel from Oxford Books University in the UK. And today, I'm here to present a great new book, and I'm here with the author, Martin Connings. The book is titled Capital and Time, and it has just been published in 2018 by Stanford University Press. Hello, Martin, Uh, please, can you introduce yourself and tell us something about your current affiliation and your background?
0: Yeah, um, thanks for the invitation. Um, I am currently um, uh, currently teaching the Department of Political Economy uh, at the University of, University of Sydney, where I'm an associate professor. Um, in terms of my background, um, I am from Holland. I grew up in Holland. I um, did my undergraduate studies in political economy at the University of Amsterdam, um, at the time they had like quite a sort of large group of um, radical political economists there who, you know, were interested in various um, aspects of, of of Marxism and Gramscianism, um, and. Um, After finishing my undergraduate studies in Amsterdam in um, 1999, I uh, went to uh, York University in in Canada, in Toronto. And that was quite a sort of a conscious choice because I was very interested in sort of Marxist political economy at the time. And that was really one of the preeminent departments um, in the world. And and they had a great number of people like Leo Panic who would... End up, um, ended up supervising my thesis at the same time, you had Ellen Meekson's wood and um, a whole bunch of other people who are, you know, we've learned a lot from. Um, and the, um, yeah, the North American sort of PhD model was very formative um, in the sense that like, first you do two years of coursework and only then do you start to write your dissertation. Um, that helped me sort of, you know, sort of think about a lot of things quite deeply. And the dissertation ended up being about sort of the historical uh, sources and institutional foundations of the American financial system. And the idea was really like, you know, everybody has been predicting that the system would collapse uh, for decades now, but you know, what is it in the nature of the system that you know, it it, it runs into crisis, but it doesn't quite collapse. What is that? I was writing this like in 2005 2006 and then you know it was kind of complete the thesis was complete um, by the time the um, the financial crisis of 2007 2008 hit and so in some sense that was good timing um, in the sense that you know your research gets a, a certain degree of topicality um, And then um, in
1: 2000, sorry, in particular, you ended the book uh, while being visiting at New York University. So you were at the center of where the Occupy movement and the crisis and the protest to the financial crisis uh, was based.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, this was much later, actually. This was uh, so after I finished my Ph.D. thesis, I went to Holland for two years Um, to work on a postdoc with Ewald Engelen, who uh, is a financial geographer at the the university there. And after I'd done that, then I moved to the University of Sydney uh, in 2009, um, where I produced a book out of the thesis. So the book out of the thesis was The Development of American Finance, that was published by Cambridge in 2011. And then I did another book on the emotional logic of capitalism Um, and both these books have made the same point that you know like critics of finance are very interested in uh, the contradictions of the system and sort of you know how it's all the reasons why it can't function and it's weak points and both of those books were really trying to figure out like well what are the what is the glue glue of capitalism what what what's uh, allows it to hang together and sort of overcome all these challenges even you know dis- despite the fact that it is so obviously problematic in so many so many ways and so once I was done with those books, then I um, embarked on you know, writing the book that we're now talking about. So, and that, and I wrote that book mostly at uh, New York University. Yes, that's right. So I, I was there in two thousand four, two 2016. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right.
1: So the crisis was over, in particular in the United States, but also the Occupy movement was over. Uh, So uh, if I may put a very, very brief summary, the book is about the intrinsic speculative nature of capitalism. Speculation is not just a negative spillover, something that you might want to control as much as possible. Uh, So this was very, very topical. Um, What is your opinion about uh, the... Unsuccessful end of the of the movements that uh, spread all over the world uh, uh, since the beginning of the crisis of 2007
0: 2008. Yeah, I mean, like it's it's hard to um, it, it's a pretty complex thing, of course. Like I realize that a lot of those movements aren't as active as they were at some point, and that some of them have even died out. Uh, but it, it does seem to me that you know Occupy Wall Street. Um, has had fairly you know significant it has you know very significant sort of consequences or influence on how we think about things like finance and banks and money Um, so you know like i can see how people would look at so just the organizational structures now and be like well that's kind of died down but i'm not so sure i think it did a lot to sort of get into people's psyches and to really put on the agenda but, you know, like it to kind of provoke a deeper engagement with um, questions that until then had been dealt with in a very technocratic way. Like nowadays, everybody can talk about, everybody knows how to talk about s- certain things like, you know, quantitative easing, for instance, in ways that would have been quite unimaginable. Yeah. Um, before the crisis, where you just kind of had this sort of really depoliticized uh, technocratic policymaking, so it's, yeah, it's it's not the kind of change that perhaps has like visible impact, but it certainly has very sort of very lasting consequences. I think, well, and it also peach- like you know the the sorry Gun yeah.
1: Oh, no no well, I wanted to quote something you wrote at page two, which is uh, this has turned out to be a serious misreading of the crisis instead of a new deal of a new new deal, we got a neoliberalism mm-hmm. recharged mm-hmm so the the, the yeah. critique didn't didn't work because it was based on wrong assumptions wrong people were criticizing the wrong stuff or oh, there are mechanisms of consent within financial capitalism that prevent us to go towards a new paradigm
0: I mean, I don't think you know. I'm certainly I'm under no illusion that you know if people sort of picked up my critique, that like politically, that would be a whole different kind of ball game. Um, and in fact, I would say that what always impressed me about Occupy Wall Street was its sort of creative approach to organizing, but also its sort of creative. Intellectual contributions and its willingness to sort of think about push push beyond that critique actually there that um, that I take the task in my book. There's even this uh, little book published years ago by Duke University Press. It's called Speculate This." And I believe quite a few uh, people from the Occupy Wall Street movement were sort of involved in producing that, and that's a very creative reflection on, you know. And the nature of speculation that goes well beyond uh the kind of you know theories that, that that i criticize and yeah so i wouldn't say it's just a matter of like well they had the wrong critique um they i think you know in the end they were just there were just more powerful forces out there you know there's the, the the resurgence of right-wing populism you know the tea parties phenomenon which of course had access to far greater resources financial media uh, the, you know, the, the sort of the radicalization of mainstream conservatism, you know, the, the democratic establishment that like, you know, tries to sort of keep the lid on these kinds of things. And yeah, I do think it's very hard to overcome these things, even if you did have the right sort of critique. And also the, um, yeah, I do feel that, you know, like it, even even though the movement isn't, you know, perhaps as much there anymore as it used to. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, there is there is also a certain, you know, alongside sort of the right-wing um, radicalization, there is a left-wing radicalization happening. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that people like, you know, Bernie Sanders um, or, or Corbyn in the UK, you know, could have been so successful in transforming the Democratic Party from, from within if it hadn't been for sort of the uh the 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 energies that occupy wall street had uh had brought to that process uh you know certainly it's done a lot to sort of radicalize the left from within to some extent and then there again like you know you you still have this um all this is still accompanied by much more profound understanding of you know technical financial issues um than we were used to, you know, now you have all these debates about, you know, the unaffordability of house prices in, in large cities. Um, you know, that is it's not as if they were entirely absent before, but certainly the intensity with which people are um, getting these issues and sort of, you know, paying attention to them. That, that is quite new, I think, and you know, politically very significant.
1: This is true, I certainly agree, you're right. Perhaps on the financial side, the financial regulation, for example, we are even taking step uh, backwards uh, on that, and in part uh, we've, we forgot the lesson. But yes, you're right, the, the movement is not over with respect to other topics. Mm. Uh, you mentioned your Marxist education and Gramsci. Um, uh, for example, what, what have you used of Marx and what uh, you have... Um, mm-hmm. You have in what in which way you've gone even ahead, or you you used a different notion of financialization and speculation than Marx's one, for example?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that really is a, quite a hard question. Um, because yeah, like I, I do have some sort of Marxist credential, but at the same time, I'm always sort of under suspicion from you know more. Uh, Proper Marxist, I guess that, like you know, I've um, you know that, that that's actually not not what I do, uh, and I understand that too. Actually, you know, that's sort totally of fine, and I don't think there's you know that, that much writing on it. But um, yeah, like f- to a certain extent, I I go along with I think. Um, sort of the core tenets of a of a marxist analysis the way marx set it out in like you know capital volume 1 for instance um where he really sort of um you know proposes a new way of approaching political economy um but then other parts i'm just less you know and less less interested in i guess like if you you know for instance like volumes 2 and 3 of capital you know they're much more concerned with the technical details, and, and you know, and to a certain extent, you see their kind of marks getting drawn back into the language and the concerns of, you know, the political economy of his time, quite understandably. But it does mean that, lot, you know, a lot of the theoretical thrust gets kind of blunted, which is, of course, also why many people like, you know, like Tony Negri are so interested in the Grundrisse, you know, like because um, in some ways, it's a much clearer theoretical statement of the philosophical dimensions of, of that sort of distinctly Marx, Marxist approach. Um, and so, yeah, you know, like, well, I'm sure that there would be lots of interesting stuff in volume two and three. Um, I'm also, I'm just not, and, and, you know, people are debating this at length, I'm less interested in those debates, I think, because it is hard to avoid a certain reductive approach to finance, like one that sees it as sort of speculative, unproductive, um, that is sort of the legacy of that 19th century political economy, which, you know, like has a strong labor theory of value often. Um, so I keep, yeah, you know, I kept a certain distance from these sort of contemporary value theory debates. Um, and when it comes to sort of, you know, working out the more technical detail of, let's say it's sort of the, the basic conception of like, you know, speculation and the kind of responses it provokes that I think is sort of in tune with Marx's understanding. But when it comes to working out the details, uh, I found Minsky actually much more helpful, not the Minsky that has become um, famous through sort of the post-Keynesian um Reading of him, but more, more Minsky. That is, um, um, so yeah, not the Minsky that is sort of also a critic of speculation as as is an unproductive practice, but more the Minsky that has been highlighted by people like Perry Merling for instance, where where it's much more about um, you know the, the 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 absolute necessity in a capitalist society to take positions on the future and the and, and the the complex tapestry of debt and payment constraints that emerges um, as a result of that, and I found that a much more um, a much more productive way to think about contemporary capitalism than for instance, going through the sort of you know the reproduction schemas and the you know, questions of circulation and those kinds of things. Um, yeah i think you know like to, to that extent I've, I've tried to sort of you know m- m- mark size minsky a little bit
1: <laughs> well if i can quote you again on page three you say that the orthodox of the past uh, can become uh, today's heterodoxy are you thinking about something in particular and so what what is wrong in the academic speculation that makes it difficult to go to the to the critique of capitalism that you you think is necessary
0: um yeah so i'm just looking at that quote like basically what i'm saying there is that um the the critique of speculation um is very old you know it started as the sort of the critique of crematistics in antiquity and then that was kind of formulated as the sort of you know the idolatrous the critique of the idolatrous worship of money in, in, in the christianity um and you know basically i'm saying that like you know this is not proof as such that there's anything wrong with that theory but certainly the fact that that, that kind of orthodoxy that the orthodox rejection of money uh, that you know was that th- that was in place in the past that that has now become sort of the heterodox critique of the system um yeah like it's 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 an uncomfortable reflection it should be an uncomfortable reflection on the nature of that critique you know they've taken some some sort of mainstream um fifteenth century christianity and and repurposed it for Criticizing um, the role of finance in contemporary society, um you know, like yeah, that's not proof that it's wrong, but intuitively on you know on every level, I feel that we can probably do better than going back
1: uh, you discussed the issue of neutrality of the state uh, and neutrality of the regulators, and in particular with respect to um, the central banking. So in which way uh, public institutions are reinforcing or contributing uh, uh, to the speculative nature of capitalism?
0: Um, Massively, I would say. And and I think that is really one of the key shifts that neoliberalism has um, ushered in, in a way. Um, How to deal with banks and the risk they take Uh, has always been a source of worry or a source of anxiety for regulators. Um, All those 19th century um, British uh, central banking debates revolve around, like, how can you protect the system without creating all kinds of new uh, moral hazard? That's what, you know, the Badgett Doctrine was kind of an an answer to that. Um, It was kind of of a first answer to that, which fit with the realities of British capitalism to a certain extent, but much less so, I think, with the American context, which was always much more sort of speculative in in, in nature. Um, And then what you see during, let's say, during the period between the New Deal and the 1970s is that regulators are facing a system that they that is speculative, again, that they can't quite control. And every time they do try to control it, you know, like, you get these sort of shadow banking dynamics where, you know, like, it just goes somewhere else. Every time they do build out an institution, like, you know, it just has these, it's got it the sort of reverse um, effects. And the shift towards neoliberalism really involves um, policymakers becoming much more comfortable with the idea of encouraging speculation because suddenly they think of moral hazard no longer simply as, you know, a problem, but also as something that is quite productive that, you know, stimulates taking certain risk positions that um, keeps the uh, system manageable in certain ways and you, you kind of see that in the you know the, the discourse the way the discourses uh, shift from you know like public um, from like crisis from concerns about um, crisis prevention to crisis containment so you know that they let go of this idea that the the crisis is something you can prevent um, and they're much more happy to um, Um, to accommodate and even sort of stimulate uh, a certain degree of speculative activity. Um, And that is of course accompanied also by the fact that they've learned that it's fine to have bailout here and there. It's not going to do something horrible. It's just a bailout. Yes, it doesn't perverse moral hazard implications, Um, but it's not the end of the world. So, after 1980 you really sort of see that and i think you know the volcker shock really played a key role here because you know there was nothing there was nothing surprising about the immediate effects of the volcker shock it was just like yeah the whole system sort of you know burst out of the institutional parameters of the of the post new new deal framework um and it was also clear that um you know there would be you know failures of large financial institutions. And so, you know, the whole point, objectively speaking, or whatever uh, Volcker thought he was doing, objectively speaking, was to sort of um, create a situation where risk could be social, risk could be socialized in more selective ways. Because that was the problem in the 1970s that like, you know, they couldn't um there there was just kind of this general inflationary trend because you know like they could only prop up the system as a whole and now you know, now that, that kind of support became much more selective it just targeted targeted at, you know large corporations that that uh, large banks that would, were about to go under
1: this also brings me back to an issue which is very prominent in the title of the book which is capital and time and also he's in chapter six which is time investment and decision so what is the mm-hmm. you often have an historical perspective and in particular what is the the uh, meaning the role of time in capitalism and in speculative capitalism mm-hmm.
0: um, so okay so let me the book criticizes the idea of speculation as sort of a a deviation from a more solid state of affairs you know basically says that like any type of valuation is speculative because it's oriented towards the future and you have no guarantees about what you're going to get um so in that sense um it really brings time into the heart of what Value and capital are about now to sort of unpack a little bit more um, It's quite common for critical social scientists to criticize Orthodox economics for not for for neglecting time Um, You know, they feel that mainstream analysis is too static not sufficiently concerned with change and then bringing time in in the way that orthodox, uh, heterodox critics do, becomes a way to make the, the analysis more dynamic, more capable of like, dealing with change. Um, but you know, I, I always think that is a limited move. You know, quite often, that means that social science becomes a combination of you know, static and dynamic analysis. So we start out with trying to analyze the world out there that is assumed to exist on its own, independent of time. And then we kind of layer time on top of that as a kind of source of change and variation. So you end up with these essentialist or determinist approaches that really deny their essentialist or determinist. You know, there are quite a few Marxist approaches um, along those lines. Um, Now, there there are other authors, uh, other Marxist authors like, you know, like David Harvey, for instance, who, who you know who plays much greater emphasis on sort of the productive character of time that is not just a superficial process but you know at the heart of how capital works capital isn't just something that exists in time but it is time um, it's dynamic it's restless it doesn't just exist in history but it makes history shapes the future um, now the key and I agree with that taken by itself um, but it can be quite difficult to. Make that insight consequential to you know really work it out in ways that show the distinctiveness of a temporal or a temporalizing approach and what I mean by that is um, that is quite common for such approaches to fall back on a combination of you know essentialist and dynamic analysis like you know which sort of resembles that base superstructure model and so for instance, like in harvey's case you know that's apparent in um in his take on finance which he sees as you know fictitious it's irrational it's a fake presentation of value um speculative and sort of pejorative sense of the word um and this is sort of allied to you know fairly um essentialist labor theory of value and the growth of credit and finance are always seen as you know manifesting contradictions in the material base of capitalist production so speculation is always a pathology and you can see this um so, so what you get in that way is you know, it's a fairly essentialist understanding of capitalism it turns out to be quite difficult to specify how capital doesn't just exist in time but how it is time um, and you see that in other um authors too, for instance, like, you know, for um, the, the, the kind of cyclical theory of history, which things in like waves of financialization that 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 manifest the contradictions of the material base, like for instance, like Giovanni Arrighi, his history of, of mm-hmm. capitalism is written along those lines. Um, so the shift that I'm trying to make in my book is to say like, okay, you know, like, this is clearly difficult. It's clearly difficult to think along those lines. So we really need to just think of capital as, at its core, speculative. Um, as you know, value, the value claims of um, of capital—they're forward-looking. They are provocations. They need to do something. They need to, you know, like. Uh, set in motion, the production of the value that they, that they represent. Um, So it becomes in this analysis that is really set in time with sort of time as an active force rather than something that is kind of layered on top of an otherwise, you know, essentialist analysis to introduce some change and some dynamism.
1: Very interesting, very complex. Like your, like the entire book, you managed to deal okay. with very complex topics, but uh, in, a, in a way which is approachable by everybody. Uh, maybe now I would like to move uh, to a question. I don't know if it is fair to ask, but do you think there are policy implications of your research? So, if you had, if you were to be named uh, as head of, I don't know, a central bank or a government, would it be possible to deploy your ideas in, in a practical way?
0: In a way, yes, in a way, yeah. Um, okay, let me put it this way. Like, I'm not sure there are too many direct policy implications. You know, and actually I'm always quite skeptical of strong claims about, you know, possibility for direct policy relevance. So policymakers, I think, occupy a certain position in society at large. You know, and if you make it your job to speak to their concerns very directly and very closely, you know, you inevitably got caught in a trade-off between access and making a difference you know you only get these people to listen if you don't challenge their pre-existing ideas and values and you know in in fundamental ways and ways that really sort of requiring require them to sort of think think differently Um, and by the same logic like you know i'm not sure that we look we should be looking to policymakers for to change things, you know, like the, um, the people who make it to those positions have gone through a process of socialization and selection, and, you know, and their job is to make the system is to keep the system running, not to challenge it, and you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I, it's just like, um, if you're looking for sources of change, I I am much more inclined to think about how my work could feed into. Some of those currents we thought we spoke about earlier—the kind of aftermath of Occupy Wall Street and uh, the way, and sort of you know, a a new kind of progressive liberalism is sort of forming around uh, Bernie Sanders and how that is sort of you know pushing the Democratic mainstream a little bit more to the left. but yeah like so, so so that would be sort of my intuitive approach but if you ask me like you know if somehow i you know tomorrow i was, I was um picked as the next um uh, president of whatever central bank yeah you know like i could think of a um a quantitative easing that is works much more for regular people than for banks like you know that is something um that people ask for it's actually like um it's quite a popular theme right now uh, and it's a very obvious thing to um to demand in a way that yeah people lost their houses but I mean, people who lost their houses got no protection whatsoever but the bank did, banks did like the the, the unfair, unfairness there is so so obvious uh, anyone can sort of relate to it so quantitative easing for the people I think is, you know, would be something I'd be very happy implementing. I also, I just don't have any illusions that, you know, <laughs> that this wouldn't be figured out beforehand or that I wouldn't be immediately booted out if, if I did that. So, um, so yeah, I think you, you get my, like, I'm, you know, I'm interested in sort of exploring those ideas, but also somewhat skeptical about how um, directly impactful these ideas can be.
1: Of course, by the way, the subtitle of your book is for a new critique of neoliberal reason. Uh, and again, that we discussed about institutions from Europe. I would like to ask you if you see the building of the European institutions, in particular those in charge of the market, and money and regulation, mm-hmm. do you think that they are the result of... Uh, uh, the mainstream you neoliberal know, um, ideology or you have a more positive view of the role of the european integration in the process of integration
0: so so, so what do you mean by mainstream ideology
1: well for example the british left uh, are about to leave the european uh, Uh, union uh, criticizing, uh, for example, some aspects of the regulation, but they were those that uh, contributed the most uh, to shape it. For example, the the idea of uh, market competition uh, applied everywhere, for example, to local authorities, uh, utilities and public services. So uh, some critique from the left of the European Union is that, uh, after all, those institutions have been shaped by neoliberalism and so they have to be criticized because they are the result of, of this dominant uh, ideology uh I have a more sympathetic view of the european union i don't know from uh, uh, australia or from uh, north america uh what is the opinion of the european union project uh, from
0: uh, a I mean. yeah no i see what you mean now uh, like <laughs> um like anything other, like anything else, like this, sort or of the grand project of European unification, I'm sure it was a very complex mixture of good intentions and people wanting to con- get control over certain parts of the institutions they were building. Um, and at a certain level, I can still, certainly, you know, when I was growing up in Holland, like, you know, 15 years old or whatever, or perhaps a little later when you're a bit more politically conscious, but it would have been very, very weird for somebody to say that they were against the European Union. That would have been really like, oh, what what kind of, you know, what's wrong with you? Like, what are you, like a, like a staunch nationalist? Uh, of, co- of course, it's like basic internationalism. So, and I can still appreciate that in a way that there is that aspect to it. Um, but even if perhaps it wasn't entirely a new liberal project to begin with and actually had some pretty noble intentions, yeah, certainly over the past decade or a decade or two or even longer, you know, it has become more and more geared to a fairly narrow set of interests that, um, that can be pretty ruthless, um, you know like the like it's also fairly well documented that there are sort of lots of you know neoliberal ideas and think tanks and whatnot behind the sort of the the building of the european union um but certainly yeah like the the, the way in which the european union has evolved over the past decade um seizing on the crisis essentially to impose a draconian austerity regime um uh, that, that has that has had horrible consequences for, um, you know, some of its economically weakest members. Um, yeah, like that's hasn't left me with any sympathy for the institution so that like you know, there are always these sort of this, the defenders who will never give up defending, like like Jurgen Habermas will, you know, like will never lose faith in the European Union but yeah i'm not i'm not there anymore like i think it's um you know it needs to be challenged um not not in the name of you know the nation state or anything like that but just as a um as an agent of um capitalism as an agent of dramatically growing inequality um and lots of other uh unsavory things
1: do you have instead uh... Are you more optimist about instead China and the possibility that China brings a, a contribution to a shift in the paradigm? Or perhaps not. Perhaps China is already very much embedded in, in a traditional financial capitalism? Um
0: I'm certainly not, not optimistic about it, but I but I can you know I like shifts in global power do produce unexpected things. So that way that you know it's not uh rule out that things might look up later but that has nothing to do with sort of you know what china is sort of bringing to the table um as things stand in a way but um and i also think that the i mean like oh okay so this is about, about geopolitics in part because Uh, I do remember that when I, in 2007, I moved from Toronto to Holland, and I I still remember being so um, bemused that um, there was this atmosphere in Holland amongst academics and amongst the wider public that, like, there was a lot of schadenfreude, like, people looking across uh, you know, across to America and say, and saying things like, oh, that could never hear. That's just those crazy Americans with the crazy levels of debt. They're risk takers. They just are careless. You know, this will never happen here. And I was like, I don't think this is a very good analysis. And, of course, you know, within a year, the whole thing blew over. And, you know, the euro crisis uh, became at least as, um, you know, uh, serious as as the American crisis has ever been. Um so, which is just to say that, like, yeah, those sort of dreams that some people have that, you, like, a, a social democratic Europe will become like a an, an alternative to the the more you know brutal racism of uh, of the Ameri- of, of America. I, I don't believe that at all. Mm-hmm. I think what you know, over time, over a much longer period of time, I do think there will be some sort of rebalancing of geographic um, geopolitical power relations, but. With the rise of China. Um, but what that will look like is, you know, it's just so hard to speculate on. I, I hope there will be some, you know, like perhaps it will open up some things. But yeah, I'm not, I don't see, you know, very particular reasons to be super optimistic.
1: Thank you very much. We've been very patient with my questions and it was a very interesting conversation. So congratulations for the yeah, thank book. Thank
0: you very much. I really enjoyed this.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I, I advise everybody to buy it because it deals with a very complex topic, but it is approachable by everybody in the way it has been written. So this is the capital in time for a new critique of neoliberal reason by Martin Konings and this was published in 2018 by Stanford University Press. Thank you very much.